The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. Well, I'm thrilled that you keep coming back. I was telling my wife this week just how, how much I just love what I get to do every week, opening up the Word this, this week in Isaiah, and I just had all these um, awakenings of seeing things that I never saw before, wrestling with the text, and it, was, it excited me to come into the room today and to be able to open up God's Word for you. One of the things that I thought I might do that I, I don't think I've done in the past um, is give you a glimpse into how I prepare for my study. And I, I always start out in the Bethlehem-owned Bible Ark, and I'm wrestling with the Hebrew text open and working through trying to understand the flow of thought and I've got a revised ESV on the right hand side and that's what I've given all of you and I'm going to read from this text because I made a few changes today but I'm going through and I'm wrestling with looking at the signals in the Hebrew text and this week for example um, as I'm walking through I'm, I, I notice this repetition it's highlighted in blue here the Lord God the Lord God, and the Lord God. And all of these statements are in emphatic position, standing out in the text, and yet all of them are then followed by this, sorry, therefore, and therefore, therefore, and that bears the weight. All of this becomes basis or reason for where we're heading where the main point of the passage is, and then more reasons are given. Reason three, reason four, and then some implications are drawn. So, I'm working this way, and this is, uh, this website's available to everybody, biblearc.com, and I'm in it probably, I mean, almost every day of my life, working through Bible arc, um, phrasing, arcing, and outlining. Um, and it's how I come to see what, what God has spoken to us. Okay, we are in Isaiah 50 today. And we're going to read through this text. Let me catch us up a little bit. In Isaiah 49, the servant Savior Himself begins to talk. Listen to me, He says. Give attention. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named me. I'm in Isaiah 49, verse 1. Verse 3, He said to me, You're my servant Israel in whom my soul delights. Verse 6, 
It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to bring back the preserved of Israel. I'll make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. That's what the servant was told by Yahweh himself. That the servant person whose name Israel, would stand as an agent of deliverance, not only for Israel the people, but for all the world. Then God tells us in verse 7, Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, His Holy One, to one despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. This is what He says, Kings shall see and arise, princes, they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you, masculine, singular, individual. This singular servant Savior, it says here, will be despised and abhorred by the nation. And yet, kings from the nations, plural, will see Him and arise Indeed, they'll bow down before Him in worship, anticipating something about this servant's mission. And then God declares, verse 8 of 49, In a time of favor I answered you. In a day of salvation I helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying, prisoners, come out, saying to those who in darkness, appear, they shall feed along the ways, on the bare heights shall be their pasture, they shall not hunger or thirst, nor neither shall scorching wind or sun strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water guide them. I'll make All my mountains a road, and my highway shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar. Behold, these from the north, from the west, and from these lands of Syene. God's going to use this servant Savior to gather in those who've been hungry, and then they won't hunger anymore. Those who've been captive, they will not be enslaved any longer. Then we heard, over the last three weeks, this, this query in verse 14, Zion says, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. And then God goes out of His way, declaring, I've got you engraved on the palm of my hand, O Jerusalem, and I will not let you go. Chapter 50, verse 1. The Lord, we move now from this vision of Jerusalem to the Children of Israel themselves who've been outcast, who who themselves are imprisoned and enslaved. Child Israel, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I've sold you? Answer, no one. We're going to find out in Jeremiah chapter 3 that he does, God does divorce the northern kingdom. He uses that language. I gave her a certificate of divorce, but Judah never receives one. Never. You think I've forsaken you? I have not forsaken you. You think I've given a certificate of divorce because of your own faithlessness? No, I have not.
God asks in verse 2, Why, when I came to you, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Everyone's hearts are hard in Israel. All the children have turned away, and God's entered in, calling them, and there's no one there who's faithful. No one who has ears to hear. By my rebuke, God says, I dry up the sea, an echo of the Exodus. I make the rivers a desert, their fish stink for lack of water, and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness, I make sackcloth their covering. God is the one who saves. Don't be like Pharaoh with a hard heart. There's only one place where hard-hearted, deaf people go. It's into the drink, to die under the waves of God's judgment. Now into that, we come to verse 4. And all of a sudden, we hear again the voice of someone. And we'll read the text after I pray. Father, I ask that you'd open up this book to us. I'm just asking, simply, let us meet, see, and savor the servant Savior. Let us see Him. And may our hearts be comforted. May trust be awakened. May our ears be open to His teaching. For the sake of Your name, I pray. Amen. All right. So you can follow along in the ESV or you can follow along in my moderately updated version. Beginning in verse 4. And as we go through this, you can keep your eye up here. We've got two parts, verses 4 through 9 and 10 through 11. Verses 4 through 9 are all in first person, autobiographical. Talking to us in his own voice. And then implications are drawn. So up here in the first part, the servant's commitment is declared to his mission of mercy and righteousness. To care for the broken and to be ever faithful to the word of his God. What God says he will obey, even to the point of death, death on a cross. Perfect obedience, that is, perfect righteousness that can in turn be counted, imputed to us. And entering in with a mission of mercy to, to target those who recognize that they are not the righteous but sinners in need of a doctor. The servant's commitment to his mission of mercy and righteousness, verses 4 through 9, he's going to give us initial reasons for his commitment, then he's going to declare his commitment, and then he's going to give us some more reasons for his commitment. And then it ends with the implications of this commitment for all who are listening. So we begin. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Reason two. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back 
to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, in light of the above, I am not disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Why? Two more reasons. He who declares me righteous is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Fourth reason. Behold, the Lord God helps me. That's why I'm committed. Who will declare me guilty? No one. Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Implications to two different groups. Charge one. Who among you is a fearer of the Lord, obeying the voice of His servant who has walked in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves rather than relying on God, who equip yourselves with burning torches. For you, I declare this, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. The word of the Lord. So we begin in verse 4. Initial reasons for the servant's commitment to a mission of mercy and righteousness. Number one reason. We see it in verse 4 itself. The Lord has equipped him to teach in a way that sustains the weary. Look with me at the text. The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning, he awakens me. He has a divine alarm clock. He awakens me. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. So we start out, I mean, it just intrudes into the text. We don't know who's talking. It just says, the Lord has given me the tongue as those who are taught. It's not Yahweh who's talking, it's someone else. And he's one who has an ear to hear from God in contrast to the nation that doesn't have an ear to hear from God. So, who's talking and we're told in verse 10? Look there. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of His servant? There it is. The Lord has given me a tongue, the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word. He is teaching in order to sustain those who are weary. And verse 10 says... Who among you fears the Lord and obeys what the servant's teaching? Are you among them? So, I think we're talking about the same... The the one who's talking to us autobiographically is the same one who taught in chapter 49, 1 through 6. 
We first heard about him explicitly called the servant in chapter 42, which we covered last spring. There, in chapter 42, it wasn't autobiographical, it was biographical. God talking about his servant. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, God says. This servant is the one I've put my spirit on him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Then he talked to us in Isaiah 49. The Lord said to me, you are my servant, Israel, and I've called you to redeem Israel, but it's too light a thing that you would only redeem them. I'll make you a light to the nations. That's what God told me, says the servant. And now we're hearing from him again. And we'll hear about him in Isaiah 53, which is right around the corner. The same servant who who suffers. There's four of these songs. They're called servant songs. And that's why I've tagged my whole series celebrating the servant Savior. So who is he? He's this servant person who comes to redeem the servant people, but not only the servant people, all the nations. Is this supposed to remind us of Jesus' teaching in the temple in his younger days? And they're going... Where does he get all of his wisdom? There's, there are so many um, allusions to these four servant songs throughout the Gospels. I think as we're working through and we're seeing Jesus depicted now in space and time, all, all kinds of light bulbs are supposed to be going off if we know our word. Sending us back, oh, we heard about this. One who who himself was taught by God morning by morning. Those who are taught, it shows up two times in our text here. He has a tongue as those who are taught, and he listens as those who are taught. Now, this those who are taught is, is translated earlier as a disciple. Those who are taught are disciples of another who follow. Now, in chapter 49-2, we already heard something that pointed in this direction. That, that he has, that, he, that he, he receives something and it results in a teaching ministry. Look with me there. 49 verse 2. He made my mouth, He, namely the Lord, made my mouth like a sharp sword. So that as I speak, it pierces into the souls of people. But the word that He has in this text now is not a piercing word, it's a soothing word. But He's coming in as a disciple, and apparently the one that He's following is God Himself. He's given me the ear of one who is taught. I have the tongue of one who is taught. So as he teaches, it's very clear he's learned. Even at 12, he's in the temple. And they're like, where did he get this kind of wisdom? I've come to do my father's business, he told the guys in the temple. He's just hearing. He's he's a obedient son listening to his father and he's meeting him every day 
Yes? Um, when I read that verse, the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain the word of who is weary, it makes me think of, well, one thing I thought of was Acts, when the, the hear your own language, but also that this one is speaking in ways that people can understand. Um, maybe other voices they've not been able to understand. Yeah, that's, that's so beautiful, especially in a book that has, uh, remember when we took that week to just say, Isaiah was written for Christians. That's where we started out our semester. And we looked specifically at the text that Isaiah said, all of my audience that are around me, I'm not writing down my book for them because they have eyes but can't see and ears but can't hear. But the day is coming, well, here it is. Bind up the testimony, God told Isaiah. Seal the teaching among my disciples. There's very few followers. There's the word. Among those who are taught. Seal it up among those who are taught and keep it. Notice for when it's going to be kept. What your point is that all of a sudden Jesus is teaching and people are able to hear and receive. And Isaiah envisioned that's, that's, that's what's going to happen. In Isaiah's day, go and write it down before all those who can't hear. Write it on a tablet, inscribe it in a book, that it may be not for your day, but for the time to come. When? When the servant shows up and begins to teach. When the nations long to hear his instruction. That's when Isaiah is going to matter. Why? Because all of those around you are rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear. That's why I'm putting it in a book. It's not for them. It's so that in a book it might be able to be copied and passed down so that 700 years from now, Jesus' day, or 2,700 years from now, our day, there might be a people who could read it. And in that day, what's going to happen? In that day, the deaf who were once deaf are going to be able to hear. They're going to be able to hear the words of Isaiah, hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom, out of their darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. Now God says, I'm going to do that in the future. And the question is, when exactly and through whom? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. What does he say? The grace, the saving grace that we are proclaiming was already anticipated by the prophets of old, who searched and inquired carefully to know something, to know specifically what person and what time the Spirit of Christ in them was foretelling the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, upon whom the end of the ages have come. When are people going to be able to hear? Who is this person who will be the teacher? That's, that's exactly right. So it says, bind it up among the disciples, and in a future day all your children will be taught. It puts it in a verbal form in the ESV, but it really what it says specifically is all your children 
will be or are disciples of the Lord. That's what's envisioned after Isaiah 53. It's going to birth something. What's going to happen in the suffering of this servant is that servants are going to come. And those servants are going to be known as disciples. Why? Because they're following, according to our text, the disciple. For us to be disciples, it meant that Jesus first had to be a disciple. His ears were open to His Father as one who was taught, as a disciple's ears are supposed to be open. And He listened perfectly. Yes, and so what this feels like to me is that we have a couple of interesting glimpses of, who, of the relationship between the Father and the Son in the Old Testament. One is the creation story where Jesus is the Jesus is right there with God at creation. He is the Word. Yes. And God says, good. Okay, so you see that, that intimacy. And now you see sort of this time of preparation of Christ the Son preparing to, for the work. And, you know, it's sort of interesting because it's modeled in the preparation of those we send out and the preparation of the disciples and so on. It's just this... this this intimacy of father-son, and I see that, I guess I see that in a new way because of what you're showing. Yeah, it's, I mean, has the, the little verse in the Gospels ever jumped out at you when it says, and Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man? What? I mean, it's, it's telling us he truly took on flesh. He became like us in every way, yet without sin. In His humanness, He needed to grow. He was perfect, but He wasn't complete. And He grew into His role. The eternal God the Son became the Son of God of redemptive history. He took on flesh, became the heir to the throne and then he took the throne. But it was a journey of growth. And, and it, it awes me because I, it, it really it shakes me up because this is where we're going to go. We're going to see this in the text is that it's, it's calling us to follow him. If Jesus had to, morning by morning, spend time with his father, look at that. Morning by morning... The Lord God awakens me. He awakens my ear as those who are taught. Morning by morning, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love. For in you I trust. Make me know the way that I should go. For to you I lift up my soul. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. All of those psalm texts anticipate the ultimate royal figure who would be surrendered fully to his God. And yet, how often do I, how often do you, 
in the scurry of life, not feel compelled, not feel it necessary to morning by morning encounter and hear and be filled. Hand. Yes. It's actually thinking about what John said. When you're talking about this stuff, I was pulled up in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who had believed in him. So he had to go through being human fully, <laughs> even though he was divine. He went through, so he sympathized with us. He knows what we go through. But his his obedience was authentic. It wasn't just because he was God. He was authentically human. That's so good. So good. Hebrews 5, 8. Thank you. Brother Rick. Jason, we've, we've been so often taught that the Jews of Jesus' time missed the significance of his life and ministry because they expected a Messiah who would come as a warrior king to liberate Israel from Roman rule, etc. Question is these verses, this whole concept of the suffering servant that we're studying here, did, did the Jews regard these verses as attributes of that coming, of the character of that warrior king, or do they think this is someone else? And maybe extension of that is who do they think this is today? So the question is, what how did the Jews Read texts like this. Did they picture this as a warrior, warrior king who only through tribulation would experience his triumph? Or did they somehow miss, miss this and just envision the triumph? And how do they read it today? So, the Jews are across the map. If we just start in Jesus' day, it's clear not only that the Jewish leaders, but the crowds and even his own disciples missed elements. What's amazing is that many of those elements were actually there in the text. So that Paul can say in Romans 16, the secret that is now the secret that was kept hidden through the ages has now been revealed to us through the Old Testament prophets. This is New Testament. The Old Testament prophets have been there a while, and yet the secret that was kept hidden has now been revealed to us through the very prophets. And we go to 2 Corinthians so that's Romans 16.25. We go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3.14, and it says all the Jews of his day, or the, the bulk of them, Paul's a Jew and he has eyes to see, but the bulk of the Jews of his day read the Old Covenant with a veil over their eyes. Because only through Jesus is that veil removed. And that level of hardness, that, that level of blindness was even apparent in the disciples themselves. In the Gospel of Mark, we've seen it a number of times. Jesus is querying, I, give, I teach in parables to everyone else, but to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. Do you still not understand? Do you still not understand? 
And there was a progressive awareness. This week in, in 3D, Deroshi's Devotions and Delicacies, it's our weekly family teaching time. <laughs> we, were, um, we were looking at, oh, is it Mark chapter 7? We were looking at Mark chapter 8, when Jesus heals the blind man. And I gave all my kids a piece of paper and I said, draw Jesus healing a blind man who sees first men walking around that look like trees and then sees fully. So the kids drew a line down the middle of their page and they first draw. It was awesome to see my littlest kids draw people that look like trees. Tolkien could have gotten some help from them. It was really good. So that drop that look like trees and then only after that full sight. Immediately, what happens next in Mark chapter 8? Peter declares, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Everybody else is thinking, oh, maybe John the Baptist, maybe Elijah. I say, you're the Christ. And then in the very next paragraph, Jesus is looking at Peter and saying, get behind me, Satan. You're telling me that suffering is not the means by which I will triumph? That's the way of Satan. I have to go this way. So in Peter, there's this, this weird reality. He sees partially, you're the Christ, and yet on the other hand, he still doesn't understand that the Christ, that term for the anointed king in the Old Testament, is the way of suffering. That's the way through which he will triumph. And so it's difficult for me, probably difficult for you, reading the Old Testament and saying, why couldn't they see it? Because we're seeing so much, but we're seeing it ultimately through the lens of Christ. Jesus provides both the light that illumines our eyes to see what was there, but he also provides a lens, a filter. Paul did not understand what the Old Testament was teaching fully until he saw the resurrected Christ. And Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 2 that the cross is foolishness to all the rest of the world, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So there's something that happens in that Pastor John's latest book, reading the Bible supernaturally, he's talking about the light side, the, the fact that we need Jesus in order to actually see in a way that we can savor and have the effect that the Scripture was supposed to make. But I would add to not only the, the seeing the light side of Christ, what He gives to the text, we need Him as a lens so that at, at some levels, and it's difficult to parse this out, at some levels, only through Christ can we actually read the Old Testament as it was intended to be read. So that even Isaiah himself didn't fully understand all that he was saying. I think he always knew that he had an acorn in his hand. But as much scientific investigation as you do of that acorn, you can't tell how tall that tree is going to be and how many leaves it's going to have and how many seasons it's going to live, how many rings it's going to bring forth. But when you're looking at the fulfillment, you can identify the organic connection between what they promised and what came out. So it's, it's difficult. Now, with respect to the Jews, 
My own engagement with Jews, I said they're across the map. Many of them um, today are still, especially among the Orthodox, are still longing for a messianic figure. But at times, they don't identify him as a person. They identify him as the people as a whole or even just the age. An age where through God's people, and many of the Jews read these texts that we're about to journey as something related to the nation. It was the nation's suffering. It would be a personification of the nation. The challenge I have with that is that Isaiah's nation is over and over again castigated by the prophet as being blind and being deaf and being filled with guilt. And this man, as we're going to see, the one who's talking, is going to say, bring the accusers in. I am guiltless. That's Isaiah's vision of this one. And, and so I, I just, I think it's a means by which we can engage our Jewish friends and say, who do you think this is? Because I, it can't be the nation because of the way Isaiah deals with the nation. It's not God himself in the sense of the spiritual being that has no form. But it is someone who will be kingly, who has such an identification that he can be declared Emmanuel, God with us, whose very name can be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace who has such an identity with God that when God does works justice, the text says He does it through this one. And Jesus historically entered in and declared, I'm fulfilling all this. So, pray for Jewish friends to just have an enlightenment but don't hesitate to go to these texts and identify what you're seeing. Jesus taught only what He heard. The Gospel of John, over and over again. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear it, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the one of him who sent me. I have much to say to you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world only what I've heard from him. Our text said, morning by morning he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. All that I have heard from the Father, I have made known to you. The Gospels are going out of their way, it seems, to say this is, this is the one that was anticipated. Now, why did He come? What does our text tell us in verse 4? What was the purpose of His teaching ministry within this context? We saw in chapter 49 it was going to be like a sword that would pierce people into their soul. But here, what's the point? To sustain with the Word... Everyone in the world, those who are weary. Those who are weary. The first time that we read about the gospel, 
Isaiah's language gospel. That's what we're calling this, celebrating the servant Savior. The gospel of Isaiah. It was in Isaiah 40, verse 9. What prepares us to hear the good news statement in Isaiah 40, verse 9 is Handel's tenor solo right here. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly. Notice that it's to Jerusalem, to the city. Speak to my bride that I haven't let her go, that she hasn't received a certificate of divorce, that as faithless as she has been, I will remain faithful. Comfort her. Cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. How about Isaiah 42? We saw this. This is the first of the servant songs. Tell us about your servant, God. My servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him, and he's going to work justice. Every football player that kneels during the national anthem, what they're telling us is this has nothing against the anthem. This has everything to do with justice. We want to see our rulers act out justice. And that cry will continue to come under every human leadership. Because there's only one ultimate sovereign who will work justice perfectly. He will come and bring justice to the nations. He'll not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he won't quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. So if you feel oppressed and you turn to Jesus... You can be certain that you will find a Savior who is able to bring justice. I've said it many times. Hell exists because God is good, not because He's bad. He is a good judge, and we want that kind of a judge. The challenge is that we ourselves are guilty in need of a Savior. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Matthew 12 quotes this text fully. This was to fulfill how Jesus was acting, why he was drawn to the weak, why he was drawn to the sinners, why he was drawn to the broken. This was to fulfill what Isaiah the prophet said would come to pass. Behold my servant, I've put my spirit upon him, and he won't break bruised reeds. It's such a comfort to weak people like us. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Notice what he says. Take my yoke upon you. A yoke, what we're thinking about is all of a sudden he said, you're, you're a bunch of oxen. And I'm saying, my yoke is what I want to use to hold you all together. And the burden that you'll be pulling in the midst of this yoke, all as a community lined up. I mean, some yokes have two oxen, some have four. We've got countless thousands throughout the ages 
bearing the yoke of Christ, and his burden is light. But notice what he says. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. Will you be a learner? He's given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain him who is weary. Are you willing to let him provide the guidance? Are you willing to sit under his teaching? I'm gentle and lowly in heart, he says. You'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God was teaching him for your sake so that he, through Jesus himself, might sustain you who are weary. It's why he comes. It's what he's doing. That's the first reason why he is going to tell us in Verse 7, therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint. Therefore, I know that I shall not be put to shame. Why? Because God has, has equipped me for my mission of mercy. But not only that, second reason, because God has empowered me. He has empowered me to obey even through suffering. And He is my present help. Look at the text. Verse 5, the Lord has opened my ear. Well, we already heard that he opened an ear, but there it was opening, opening his ear so that he could be taught rightly, so that he would then have in turn instruction to give. But this is different. God has opened his ear in a world filled with deaf people who therefore are hard-hearted and go their own way. God has opened this man's ear and I have not been rebellious. This isn't about people following the Christ. This is about Christ following His Father and doing so perfectly. And God's enabled it. God has opened His ear, and I have not been rebellious. There's a pattern. It starts in Deuteronomy. Well, actually, we see... Uh, allusions to it, anticipations of it already in Exodus chapter 20. God shows up in the fire and the cloud at Mount Sinai and the people freak out and run away and Moses says, don't be afraid for the Lord has come to test you that you might fear Him so that you will not sin. In Deuteronomy it lays it out this way. It says specifically, in the context of, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear it, hear it. And yet he declares, God hasn't given you ears to hear or eyes to see or a heart to know. He hasn't given it to you and he won't give it to you until the prophet like me comes and I circumcise your heart and in that future day you will hear all that I am commanding you and then you will obey. The pattern is, Hearing leads to fearing, which leads to obeying. Hearing means you have to have an encounter with the living God, and that encounter has to awaken something. But most of it, Isaiah's audience were spiritually deaf. They didn't have ears to hear. As much as he preached, they just heard, la, 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 and rebellion filled their souls. 
And God had told Isaiah, this is your mission. Go out and proclaim to them, keep listening but don't hear. Keep looking but don't see, lest you see with your eyes and hear with your ears and turn and be healed, Isaiah chapter 6. How long, O Lord, do I have to have this kind of a mission? Until all of Israel burns. And then I'll burn them again. The holy seed is its stump. That's all that's going to be left is a little stump. That's the last verse in Isaiah chapter 6. And that holy stump becomes a shoot from the tribe of Jesse through whom an entire garden, a new garden of Eden is birthed. A new creation is birthed from a single stump. All of Isaiah's audience doesn't hear. God raises up a teacher in that future day, and all of a sudden, people will begin to hear. But it all starts with him hearing and obeying perfectly. The pattern, hearing, leads to fearing, leads to obeying. Now, notice what we get here. What, what this obedience means for this servant. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. What's the significance of that? He's not just following his God. In following his God, it leads him right into the heart of suffering, right into the heart of tribulation. I gave my back to those who strike, my cheek to, cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and from spitting. I mean, this is, this is just picked right up. All of the accusations. Isaiah 42 had anticipated it. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he's established justice on the earth. That suggests that there might be something to grow faint from. That there would have been something that could have made him discouraged, but he refused to be discouraged. 49.7, turn back there. The Redeemer says to one who is deeply despised, abhorred by his nation. So in one breath, he he's, has things around him that could bring discouragement. Now we find out, one step forward in the servant songs, he's despised and abhorred by those who are around him. And now, in Isaiah 50, what we read is that he is actually being struck by those around him. They're ripping his beard out. And he's doing it in obedience to his father. Come what may. And it'll culminate in Isaiah 53, where it just unpacks unbelievably, like a sheep who was led to slaughter. He didn't open up his mouth. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brings us peace was upon him, and by his stripes were healed. Indeed, if he, God, was pleased to crush him, to put him to grief, if he would but offer himself as a guilt offering, then something would happen. He would see, and he would be satisfied. In what? What would he see? What would he be satisfied? It tells us specifically, he would see his offspring and be satisfied for the joy set before him he would endure. All shame, all abuses, he would persevere in obedience to his father, all because God opened his ear. 
So, verse 6. Anybody see any footnotes there? You're reading this in your own devotions and you're like, this sounds a lot like someone I know. Someone whose story I've read many, many times. Where would you go? Okay, where else? Matthew 27. Isaiah 53, yes. Mark 15. Okay, so we have a minute. So we could go to all those places and we would see explicit allusions to these texts. All the abuses that were done to him at the cross. All the terror that he experienced. What's amazing to me as well is, this is, um, I, I got to teach through the servant songs in a multi-ethnic um, environment probably almost 10 years ago now. And everything was through a translator. And I taught through the servant songs twice. The first time was exalting the portrait of Jesus that we see. The second was calling people to look like Jesus. Notice how the apostles talk about what Jesus endured and how it's supposed to impact us. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In Christ, you get this kind of way of thinking. In Christ, you begin to have a reorientation in this way. We're going to close right here on these two texts. This Jesus Christ, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient. He had ears to hear and He did not rebel. He became obedient even to the point of death. Death on a cross. Have that kind of mind that is yours in Christ Jesus. And I'd say it's only yours in Christ Jesus. Nobody takes on a mission of suffering like this. A mission of suffering for the sake of seeing others live. There's people in this world who will take on a mission of suffering in order to see others die. But in order to see them live, having hearts not filled with hatred but love, have this mind which is yours in Christ. It's the only way it comes to be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For to this you have been called, church, because Christ also suffered for you, He left you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in His mouth. He heard from His Father and He did not rebel. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We'll see this next week when he declares in verse 8, the one who declares me righteous, ESV, the one who vindicates me is near. 
The one who declares me righteous is near. The God who judges justly. He himself, this Christ, bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? That we might follow in his pattern, taking up our own cross, dying to sin, living to righteousness. By his wounds we've been healed. My prayer in coming in today was God help me show them Christ. I pray that you've seen him. Father, I thank you that you are faithful to proclaim your word. Work in the hearts of all these in this room. Help us run from evil and cling to good. Not simply following in the pattern of Christ, but living in the power that you alone can supply because you've opened our ears. We have learned as those who've been taught, taught of God, and because we have not rebelled. For the glory of Christ, I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.